Thanks for downloading Development Drums number 13. I'm Owen Bader in Ethiopia. Britain is widely recognised as a world leader in international development. There is broad public support, a cross-party consensus in politics, and admiration for the work of the government's Department for International Development. There will be a general election in Britain in the next 12 months. And today's episode of Development Drums looks at whether and how development policy might change if there's a new government. I'll be talking to Andrew Mitchell, the man set to become the Cabinet Minister responsible for international development, if the Conservative Party wins the next election. Before we talk to Andrew Mitchell, I want to remind you that you can subscribe to Development Drums on iTunes. Go to the iTunes store and search for Development Drums. It's free. You can also subscribe by going to the website at developmentdrums.org. And I want to apologise to those of you eager to listen to the forthcoming episode about philanthrocapitalism. We've had some problems with internet connectivity here in Ethiopia which have conspired to prevent us from recording that show. Please bear with me, I hope that we'll have that for you soon. And also please go to the Development Drums group in Facebook or to developmentdrums.org to tell me what you think about the show. What topics do you want me to cover? Who would you like to hear from in future episodes? And what questions would you like me to ask? If you believe the opinion polls in Britain, then there's a good chance that the Conservative Party, led by David Cameron, will win the next general election, probably sometime in 2010. And if that happens, the person set to become the Cabinet Minister responsible for international development is Andrew Mitchell, the current Shadow Secretary of State. In this edition of Development Drums, I'll be asking Andrew Mitchell what Conservative policy on development will be and how it might change from current policies. Andrew Mitchell, Conservative Shadow Secretary of State for Development, welcome to Development Drums. Thank you very much, Sean. Now, Before we talk more generally about Conservative policy on development, let's talk for a moment about your recent trip here to Ethiopia and to Kenya and Eritrea. I last saw you here in Addis, where you had just returned from Butajira, a town, I suppose, about 150 kilometres south of here, to see the impact of the aid that the British government gives to Ethiopia. What did you see and what did you make of it? Well, I had a fascinating trip to the Horn of Africa, um, which was principally to uh, look at the situation in Somalia, but from outside Somalia, which is why I went to what is one of the biggest uh, refugee camps in Africa, in Dadaab, in northern Kenya, uh, to meet and uh, see what is effectively a sizable percentage of the Somali uh, population. But my uh, visit to Ethiopia was to have a look at Africa's uh, the biggest uh, program that the British taxpayer supports uh, in Africa and to see how it was being uh, spent. And that was the reason uh, for my visit, which you have just described. Um, and the truth is that the social protection program, which I saw, uh, seemed to me to be a very good use of uh, British taxpayers' money and to be a highly effective way of, of helping uh, the people who uh, we set out to help. Um, I think that there is an interesting issue in Ethiopia, which is that uh, the government structures, which are pretty strong and therefore able to make sure that uh, what government says it will do, uh, it does, in particular in terms of the probity of the spending. Um, but on the other hand, the, the, the growth of the private sector, which, as you and I know, is the key driver of getting people out of poverty. It is to, to it is, uh, it is uh, economic 
economic uh, growth and economic endeavor is very weak. Indeed, one of the sort of uh, one of the sort of oddnesses about my visit was in Ethiopia. You've got a country with strong uh, government structures, uh, but a weak. Uh, private sector. Uh, in Somalia, you've got a country uh, with very few government structures, but actually quite a flourishing private sector. That's one of the uh, ironies of, of, of that part of the world. But what I saw during the visit to Ethiopia uh, was very encouraging. Um, I spent time with the uh, Prime Minister Melazinawi, um, and it's clear that uh, the program in Ethiopia is well run and uh, well constructed. And if uh, my party is uh, elected next year. Certainly one of the things we will want to do is to try and see how we can take forward uh, the pace of uh, development uh, in Ethiopia and, if anything, intensify it. As you say, the government here is very strong. It, it uh, delivers those kinds of programs extremely effectively and is able to account for the money. But there are concerns, as you know, about the democratic space, the evolution of governance here in Ethiopia. Is that, uh, is that a concern that you share? It is, and I've certainly made the point, uh, I hope, very firmly to Melo Zanawi that uh, Britain's uh, desire to help and the willingness of our taxpayers to support development in Ethiopia is actively hindered by the fact that he has incarcerated the leader of the opposition. And, uh, it, you know, he had many uh, reasons, which he has said publicly, for, for why this has happened. But nevertheless, incarcerating the leader of the opposition... Uh, is a mistake, and I urged him to uh, free her as rapidly as possible. And what do you think should happen in a situation like Ethiopia, where we're reasonably confident that the aid money is being well spent and you can see how it's being used, but where you have these concerns about the quality of the democracy and the nature of the governance? What do you think donors should do in a situation like that? Well, I don't think there's a golden rule, but um, I think that there are a, a number of key principles. The first of these is that, in the end, if you uh, decide uh, that because of the actions of the government you're going to withdraw aid from a country, uh, what that means is that the poor people in that country who you're trying to help lose out twice over, once because they're not getting the aid, and secondly because they've got uh, suboptimal government. And so uh, the conclusion uh, to these sort of discussions, in my view, should not be that you're going to withdraw aid, but it certainly affects the way in which you uh, give it. And uh, Ethiopia is a country which uh, we might be able to do uh, some uh, more budget support uh, with in the future if, if there was uh, uh, more honouring of the democratic space by the uh, government and the authorities in Ethiopia. In the lack of that, it inevitably means one will do less through the government uh, as a result of their actions. Even though the government is able to account for the money and you're able to see how the money is being used. So it's not a public financial management problem that you've got here, but a broader problem of, of other governance issues. Even in those circumstances, you think more of the money should flow outside government, for example, through civil society organizations, because of that lack of democratic space. Yes, I do. I mean, otherwise you get yourself into the position that the most authoritarian, unaccountable uh, government, uh, because it uh, delivered aid, uh, should be strongly supported. Um, and I think that that is not uh, acceptable. So although there are no hard and fast rules, part of development is enabling ordinary people to hold their leaders and their politicians 
to account for what they do. And in a society where that is either not possible or where it isn't happening at all, I think that the international donor community uh, cannot just ignore that because the structures of the government are such that the aid is, 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 is we're reasonably confident that the aid is getting through. Uh, you have to view these matters uh, in the round. Um, and in my view, although I'm anxious that ordinary people should not lose out because their government is suboptimal, uh, it does certainly affect the way in which you work with that government. Right. And after visiting Ethiopia, you went south, as you say, to Dadaab, the refugee camp on the border between Kenya and Somalia. And there's now nearly a quarter of a million people living in that refugee camp. What, what was that like? Well, it was uh, a salutary experience. I've visited many refugee camps um, in the uh, four years that I've been doing this uh, job in opposition, and on each occasion it is uh, a pretty horrifying experience. You see the uh, state in which uh, these poor people live. You see the difficulties which they face every day of their lives. You see the lack of security, sometimes the lack of uh, food and adequate water and so on. And so while... I'm all, I always find myself uplifted by the support that the international community is giving uh, on the spot and by the way in which these uh, wonderful and devoted people seek to, to help uh, the refugees. One is nevertheless left with a feeling of deep misery and depression uh, at the failures which have led to them uh, being there. Dadaab is, as you said, uh, a place of, I think, a little more than a quarter of a million people now in space originally set up for 90,000 people, a sizable chunk of the Somali population several percent is, is there. Some of them have been there for 19 years. Uh, others are still arriving at the rate of more than 100 a day. And it's a uh, situation where the international community have been uh, very unsuccessful in addressing these points. Um, so it was uh, a, a uh, uh, sad and salutary experience. Um, on the other hand, uh, I do think that uh, there is the possibility of a, a glimmer of hope uh, in respect of Somalia with the regime of Sheikh Sharif. And uh, it was very important that we give such support as we feel we can uh, to him and to what he is uh, trying to do. Otherwise, in six months' time, we may kick ourselves for not having maximised what looks like a rather better opportunity than we've had recently. Let's move on now to talk more generally about what a Conservative government might mean for the UK's development policy. There's, it strikes me there's been rather a strong cross-party consensus in favour of the idea that the UK should play a leading role internationally in development. Is that also your sense? Yes, I am uh, very keen uh, that international development should be seen as British and not as either Conservative or Labour. And just as it was a Conservative government which started the uh, debt uh, forgiveness and the debt uh, elimination programmes under John Major and Ken Clark as Chancellor of the Exchequer and Prime Minister, um, uh, so Labour have, uh, on some aspects of international development, done, done well. I think that uh, DFID has made an excellent start. We'd like to uh, make it uh, more of a department for a Department of State for development in the developing world and, and uh, perhaps uh, take its uh, rightful place more easily within the Whitehall uh, constellation. But uh, 
we think that Claire Short did a very good job in setting up the uh, department, um, and that's why we've made it absolutely clear that uh, DFID will remain under a Conservative government with its own uh, member of the Cabinet uh, as well. So let me, it will remain, uh, this is an important pledge that the Conservative Party has repeated, uh, is that it will remain both a separate government department and have its own cabinet minister under the Conservatives. Yes, so, that is, but, David Cameron and, has made this and, point on many occasions, and I'm happy to reassert it uh, on your programme, Owen. The Labour government, when it came to power in 1997, said in its white paper then that the purpose of the aid programme was to eliminate global poverty, and that, as you know, was enshrined in law in the International Development Act. So now in the UK, it's uh, I guess people outside the UK and maybe in the UK don't know this, it's illegal to use the aid programme for anything other than reducing global poverty. Is that something that the Conservative uh, Party, if it came to government, would intend to keep in place with that, that restriction on how the aid programme is used? Well, we've made it absolutely clear that we do not intend to uh, change the Act. Um, and uh, that... Uh, remains uh, our our position. Um, and we will be setting out our thoughts on uh, development in our green paper, which we hope to uh, launch uh, shortly, um, which uh, will set out in great detail uh, how we intend to uh, take forward uh, British uh, development policy. But I think that uh, you will uh, see when we publish our green paper that our commitment to this being a British policy where uh, everyone of whatever political party and no political party can support that approach will be very strongly enshrined in that document. Now, I don't expect you to tell me everything that's going to be in the green paper, but, but just to be clear, that, that means that the principle that, it, that the aid programme should be used to eliminate global poverty, as set out in the International Development Act, that you intend to keep in place? Yes. I mean, it seems to me that there are many different things that you can do to reduce poverty, and governments of all political parties make choices about where to spend money, how to spend money, what to spend it on, within that overall goal of poverty reduction. And some of those choices are made, again, under any government, taking into account Britain's other national interests, our commercial interests or our security interests. Do you think that... Uh, this present government has got those choices broadly right? Is that something that a Conservative party would want to see the development programme still being used for poverty reduction, but used more in support of other foreign and commercial objectives? Do you you think that there'll be a change in the balance there about how those decisions are made? Well, let me make three points. The first is that uh, we are absolutely clear that uh, we need to demonstrate that development expenditure made by the British taxpayer is well spent. And that's why we have said that independent evaluation of our aid program will be right at the top of our agenda. And uh, if you think about it, it's a very uh, important aspect of development policy going forward, because given the state of the public finances, uh, there will be no chance of maintaining public support for the 0.7 unless we can demonstrate to the taxpayer that they're getting really good value uh, for money. And that's why uh, we think it's very important to make uh, sure that the spending is spent in the best possible uh, way. And just as we uh, want accountability to be independent in the developing world, so too in Britain, uh, the uh, accountability should be 
um, external to the Department for International Development. It should be truly independent, and that's why we said it will report to Parliament uh, and not to uh, DFID. And I think uh, that's a, a key uh, priority for us. It's part two of demonstrating that we are um, trying uh, to focus on outputs and outcomes uh, rather than the inputs, beloved of the current Labour government. La Labour are very fond of uh, announcing big packages of money, for example, on day trips to Maputo when uh, Gordon Brown announced half a billion uh, dollars for education. We think that what is much more important is the output, uh, in other words, how many teachers do you train, how many schools do you build, and even more important than the outputs, the outcomes, how many kids are actually getting a decent education. So we will, we will change the focus very much onto uh, outputs and outcomes. So there'll be, no, there'll be no announcements of spending under the Conservatives. You won't, you won't be flying around the world announcing new uh, British contributions. You'll be only announcing the results that those contributions are expected to achieve. No, we'll be, we'll be doing both, but we think that you can't the focus is too much on inputs, where that's the only thing that governments are announcing, rather than on the outputs and outcomes. And we need, and we need to do that, firstly, because we need to know that the aid programme is being deployed in the best possible way, and secondly, uh, to give uh, proper accountability and satisfaction to our taxpayers that the money is being really well spent. So that is, that is one aspect of this. The second aspect, of course, is that we need to inject a bit more private sector and civil service DNA into uh, DFID because it is through economic growth and economic development that poor people are lifted out of poverty. India and China have shown that beyond peradventure in uh, recent years by lifting hundreds of millions of their citizens out of poverty by being part of the international uh, trading system, by making things and selling things that people want to buy. So that is a sort of key injection of ours uh, as being the first and most important driver of the elimination of poverty. And then, of course, there is conflict uh, resolution, stopping conflict starting once it's started stopping it, and once it's over, reconciling people who have been at war with each other. And that is a very important aspect of development, uh, too. It's a point brilliantly made by Professor Collier in both his uh, recent uh, books, that uh, in the end it is conflict which condemns people to uh, poverty, and no, how, no matter how much access they have to aid and trade. So our, our development policies will be designed to uh, promote economic growth and bear down on uh, conflict, um, and I think that both those two things are incredibly important. There's one other uh, emphasis I should also like to uh, mention, which is uh, that uh, there has been a move towards uh, multilateral rather than bilateral spending, and also uh, in some cases towards budget support. Uh, and uh, we want to look very carefully uh, at that in government. Uh, we suspect that budget support is being too widely used. Uh, we understand completely that budget support is the best way of doing development if you can trust the government with whom you are working. But it must be accountable to the parliamentarians and civil society in that country, which is why we have said that up to 5% of amounts we make available in budget support can be used for evaluation and independent assessment of the quality of that, uh, that spending. Uh, but also, um, in terms of bilateral spending, uh, we 
don't want to see uh, that program uh, diminished in favor of multilateral uh, spending um, unless there's a very strong development case uh, for it. And we think that there should be uh, the availability of more funding, uh, sometimes on a matched basis, to some of brilliant Britain's brilliant uh, NGOs, which operate so magnificently around uh, the world. And, and therefore, we have uh, announced that we will set up uh, in the first year, uh, funded to the tune of £40 million, a poverty impact fund, which will be available to NGOs on a matched basis to uh, double the output and the outcomes that they are achieving if the taxpayer is able to double the inputs and the income that they're getting. So that is a long answer uh, to your uh, your slightly general question. On, well, it was, uh, it was very clear. Would be. One, a point you made earlier was that you wanted to see DFID continue its evolution into being a development ministry. Um, and I, uh, when you said that, I uh, understood you to be contrasting it with an aid agency, so the, the, the difference between development and aid. But I, uh, how much do you see DFID moving into uh, having a stronger voice in policy areas? You talked, for example, about conflict, and um, there are a number of uh, policy issues in which um, DFID might play a stronger role, for example, in arms controls or in um, in peacekeeping, where the issues are not necessarily to do with aid, uh, but to do with broader policies of the industrialized countries. And again, in private sector growth, you said that a conservative government uh, would place more emphasis on that. And there are a set of issues to do with, for example, trade policy or intellectual property rights that might affect private sector development. Do you see DFID having a big role in a broad range of of broader government policies that affect developing countries, or do you see it primarily focusing on its role as a giver of aid? No, I think that one must remember that DFID uh, pursues uh, not so much DFID priorities, but as part of the uh, architecture of Brit Brit the British government, it pursues British government priorities. And I think it's a sort of, it's not a secret that when it comes to trade policy, the very high quality of DFID's uh, economists and so forth who have worked on that um, has been available to other departments and I think has, has, has uh, contributed hugely to the policy of the British government in, in, in that in that respect. Um, I think the point I'm really making about DFID's role within the constellation of Whitehall is that uh, I think to be a Department of State for development in the developing world requires uh, non-developmental DNA, as well as those who've had their sort of classic route through an NGO or a development agency. And that's why I think that injecting a little more civil service DNA and business DNA, for the reasons I set out on uh, the importance of business, um, uh, is uh, extremely important. Um, and that really was the point I was making, making sure that DFID uh, develops into a Department of State for development in the developing world. Uh, is something which you can't do overnight. David's made an absolutely brilliant uh, start, um, but obviously, inevitably, there is further to go. As I'm sure you realise, there are lots of uh, DFID staff who listen to development drums, and I guess some of them will be wondering whether you have 
something specific in mind about a bit of civil service DNA or indeed a bit of private sector DNA that's currently missing? Is there a behaviour or a pattern that you observe from your position as opposition spokesman that you would like to see changed? I think that, uh, no, I think the answer to that is that, uh, is that it, it, this is all about a sort of easing uh, uh, on the tiller uh, in the direction that we're going. We're heading in the right direction, but I think, I think that there, there are sometimes concerns that uh, there needs to be a little bit more of the civil service in DFID, and perhaps, uh, you know, slightly uh, more of the private sector as well to enhance the general thrust of the department's work. I think that no one should be uh, alarmed by that. And in my experience, many who work at DFID understand and support that proposition. And your green paper will be being published in the summer? Yes. Uh, not too long now, and I think that it, I know it will be widely read, and I hope it will be uh, very strongly approved of by many of the development actors in their in their different roles. Um, the Conservative Party has never produced a, a document quite like uh, this before. I'm immensely proud of it, and I think that uh, not everyone will agree with it. It's, after all, speaking to a huge range of uh, of opinion, but uh, I think it takes forward an agenda which uh, I passionately believe in. I'm very proud of what the Conservative Party has uh, said and done under uh, David uh, Cameron. And I'm absolutely convinced that if we are to have the honour of being in government, uh, then uh, our time uh, in, uh, I was going to say at the crease, to use a cricketing metaphor, but our time at the crease will be very well used to take forward an agenda which is passionately supported in Britain. Andrew Mitchell, Shadow Secretary of State for International Development, thanks for coming on Development Drums.